So I was trying to come up with a way to kind of link uh, Jesus and Peter walking on water and me walking on ice this morning, but I couldn't come up with any way other than to say I am so glad that you guys made it safely this morning, and uh, it's just wonderful to see you. My name is Clay, one of the pastors here, and if I haven't had the chance to meet you, come on up and say hi. Uh, Afterwards, love to just take a couple minutes and get to know you a little bit. So I am a reader. I'm often reading two, three, four, five different books at the same time. Don't ask me necessarily the titles on them, but I'm reading them anyway. And I, you know, I just love reading and reading different news sites on the internet and different blogs and different things like that. So this week I was just doing a little bit of reading on the internet, trying to find out uh, the, uh, some of the most popular TV shows from the past uh, 60, 65 years. And actually, as I was doing this research, I'm like, why do the popular TV shows only go back to about 1950? And I said, wait a second, when was the TV invented? You know, so obviously you're not going to find too many TV shows from like the 1910s or, or something like that. But I came up with a list of some of the most most popular TV shows. See how many of these uh, you actually watched or maybe have seen on reruns. 1950s, two of the most popular TV shows were I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver. And I watched both of those, though not in the 1950s. Did enjoy watching that. 1960s, Beverly Hillbillies, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Brady Bunch. And I have to admit that uh, over Christmas vacation, both of my daughters were home and we sat around the TV watching DVDs of the Beverly Hillbillies. And that was a lot of fun. They don't make them, they don't make shows like that anymore. And uh, that was a lot of fun, watching Granny with the shotgun and and that kind of thing. 1970s, All in the Family and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley kind of go together. And did you know, a little piece of trivia with Happy Days, that uh, Henry Winkler, the Fonz, went to Yale University. And uh, that was pretty impressive, and I won't hold that against him. Um, 1980s, The Cosby Show, we'll skip that one. Uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation, which I loved watching. You see, that's kind of the nerd in me. And then MASH. And did you know, the number one uh, most watched in terms of percentage of the country, the number one most watched TV episode or show of all time was the finale of MASH. Over 60% of households were watching that TV show. 75, 77% of TVs in the United States were tuned to the finale of MASH. And that's just pretty amazing uh, to think about that one. 1990s was the uh, lost decade for me. Cheers, Seinfeld, and Friends. I have seen probably like one episode of each of these. Sorry to admit that. I know a number of you just love, I think Cheers especially, people seem around here to love Seinfeld also. 2000s, everything changed in the 2000s. Far and away, the number one show in the 2000s, year after year after year, was American Idol, which in some ways is so different from all of the others. And I actually watched American, I was watching American Idol the other night because uh, Kevin, one of your students, made it through to the Hollywood round. And so that was pretty exciting. We were excited about that. And uh, Jack, uh, Jax, right? Sorry, sorry? Jackie Neese. Jackie Neese. So root for her, vote for her. There we go. So she's a local girl from Springfield. So we got to vote for her when that happens. That's pretty cool. Anyway, American Idol, far and away the number one show. Everything else pales by comparison. Grey's Anatomy, Big Bang Theory, uh, Modern Family, those are some of the other ones. But when you stop and you think about these different TV shows, they all have one thing in common, and that's 
relationships and community and family and hanging out together and stuff, whether it's the Brady Bunch, you know, which is a sort of a family show, or Cheers, which is all the friends in the bar, even American Idol, they work in the family and relationship aspect because, you know, when they get to the final, the, the final group, they send them home, right? And you get to see what their hometown was like and they do all these spots focusing on what their families are like. And you see the relationships with the judges and they actually have the final contestants living in a house together. So again, over and over and over again, we see these families, we see these relationships, we see these communities and we step back for a minute and we say, you know, there's a little bit of idealism or sometimes there's a lot of idealism in there because how many families can resolve these major crises in 30 minutes plus, you know, including commercials there? It just doesn't work that way in real life, but there's enough real life there and there's enough hope for the idealism that we see in some of these shows that we keep coming back and watching them and, and saying, I wish that my family or my life were a little bit more like that. And I think that's part of the, the, the draw of these things. Um, and that's why they're, they're so popular. And many of us come from families that are pretty good. You know, we're, we have our problems, we have our issues, we have our challenges, but overall we'd say we've got a good family life. And others of us would say, I don't know about my family life, maybe that's not so strong, but I've got some good friends. I've got a, a group of people whom I can hang out with who are there for me when I need them. And so we feel pretty good about our communities and our relationships that we have. But others of us have more of a challenge, right? Our, our families are broken or non-existent at this point in our lives. Uh, some of us would say, we don't have any friends and, and life is pretty lonely. So we watch these shows and we say, I wish that I had something like that. And I think that's kind of part of the universal condition, a uh, human condition. We all want to be part of a healthy community. And when we look at Scripture, I just appreciate the realism and the idealism that are mixed together there in Scripture. Realistically speaking, the world is broken, it's fallen, but ideally God is working to bring it back to the way that he originally created it to be. And if you kind of just follow the main storyline of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God created a perfect environment and Adam and Eve, the first human beings, had a perfect relationship with, with one another, but also their relationship with God was perfect and unbroken. Nothing standing between them and one another and between them and God. And then chapter three of Genesis, sin enters into the world. The world is fallen, it's broken. Adam and Eve are ashamed to be naked in front of each other. They're ashamed to be seen by God. And so those relationships that once were perfect are now broken. And then the fourth chapter of Genesis, you've got one brother killing another brother because he's jealous. You know, and then it's all downhill from there. But throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, you see God working to restore those broken relationships between us and each other and between us and God. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that God is creating a new community that we call the church. And I don't mean just Renaissance church, I'm talking about the universal community of all followers of Jesus all over the world. We've got that connection with one another because of our connection with Jesus Christ. And God is working to build that community. And Renaissance church is one local instance of that. And God's ideal and God's desire is that we, as a church, 
be a community who loves one another, who cares for one another, who helps out one another. And yeah, we're broken. Yes, we've got problems. But we try to keep short accounts with each other and build each other up. And that brings us to the final paragraph uh, surrounding our verse of the year. We've been looking at part of Hebrews chapter 10. and our verse of the year, we've got it on the wall here. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And we've been looking at the context, the verses just before and just after that. And the two verses that come right after Hebrews 10, 23 are verses 24 and 25. And I want to read those. We're just going to spend the rest of our time this morning taking a look at those. The writer says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And I think what the writer is saying is that God wants his people, he wants his church to be the kind of community whose members, whose participants love one another, do good for one another, encourage one another, help one another out, care for one another. We're supposed to be there for one another. And that's the ideal. But he starts off very realistically when he says, let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. We wouldn't need spurring on if we were doing it perfectly. So there's that reality right there. We're broken. We're messed up. We hurt each other. And we don't always take the initiative to love others and to do good deeds for others. So we need that spurring on. And the word that he uses for spur on could be translated irritate or provoke. Um, and I think that, you know, I know a number of Christians who have that as a spiritual gift. They are good at irritating and provoking other people, you know. And, and we, we do irritate and we do provoke one another in a negative way. But he's taking this and saying, no, take this negative concept and use it in a positive way. Just as a rider on a horse uses the spurs to irritate and provoke the horse to get it going where it needs to be going, in the same way he's saying, we need to do that for one another, not to hurt each other, but to help each other, to, to encourage each other, and to move each other in the right direction that we wouldn't necessarily go. Because sometimes we need a nudge or we need a kick in order to do the right kind of thing. And we need to be realistic about the fact that we don't always live the way that God would want us to live. And he's put us here together with one another in order to help one another to move more and more and more in the direction that he wants us to go. And so from an ideal perspective, the church, Renaissance or, or, or any other church, is a community where we're asking ourselves, how can I spur on to love and good deeds the people around me? How can I provoke? How can I encourage? How can I move others to love and good deeds? And how can I let them, do that, let them know that I want them to do the same for me? Because really, to be able to do that for one another, we've got to have a foundation of trust. We've got to have a foundation of relationships because we can't just walk up to somebody we don't know and push them in one direction. Otherwise, that's going to be the wrong kind of provocation and the wrong kind of irritation. So we've got to have that foundation from which to work that. And I think that's some of what he's talking about uh, in the rest of the passage. So then he goes on and he tells us that 
the church, God's church, is to be characterized by love. Let's spur one another on towards love. And as I was thinking about this, the golden rule kind of comes to mind as the probably most compact statement of the kind of love that the writer is talking about here. And the way that Jesus puts it, he says in Luke chapter 6, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you take it at a very surface level, it'd be kind of like my saying to my wife, well, you know, I like to watch football, so I'm going to take you to watch football. <laughs> Problem with that is she, she'll tolerate football and she'll watch it for me, but she's not going to watch it for herself. So if I'm thinking of it kind of at that surfacey level and I, and I look at it and say, I want to watch football, so I'm going to watch football with my wife. No, that's not the best thing. What I need to do is do for her what would be meaningful to her, show her love in a way that's meaningful to her. And that's not going to involve football with my wife. With one of my daughters, loves to watch football. My wife, not so much. So I need to be a student of Anne, my wife. I need to be a student of my kids. I need to be a student of you guys and asking myself over and over and over again, how can I show love to you in a way that's meaningful to you? And I think the writer is saying he wants us to be a community of people, a group of people who are asking ourselves, what's the love language of the people around me? How can I show love to the people in my church in a way that's meaningful to them? And imagine how much you'd like for somebody to be doing that for you, knowing you well enough that they know what's meaningful for you, and then they show you love in that meaningful way. And he goes on and he says, the church is not only known for love, it's also known for good deeds. And it came to my mind this week, the first thing that came to my mind was what, what we did as a congregation at Christmas time. 350 kids got presents and Bibles because we, because you guys, because people from Renaissance decided to give and to help meet a very practical need for kids who otherwise might not have had any presence under their Christmas tree. Now, as a result of the generosity of this church doing good deeds, 350 kids were able to have Christmas presents and Bibles. And we can, we can do similar things. I mean, that's people outside of our church. Uh, none of those kids go to Renaissance, but we can do similar things for people in Renaissance. It may not be giving them Christmas presents, but you know, I've heard a number of situations where someone's got outpatient surgery, for example, and they have a choice of taking a cab or maybe someone's going to drive them because they know they're not going to be able to drive back. And you know them well enough, first of all, to know that they're having outpatient surgery, to know that they've got no family member who's able to drive them to and pick them up from that outpatient surgery, and to know that they're actually going to need that help. And so rather than letting them take a cab, you say, you know what, let me drive you. And you're showing them love. You're doing good deeds for them in that very practical way. Or somebody has a baby and you mobilize a bunch of your friends. You spur on a bunch of your friends and you say, let's get together. And for the next couple of weeks, let's make that family meals or go out to the store or the restaurant and bring, you know, buy the food and bring it to them. However you do it, thinking about how can you love them in a practical way by doing good deeds for them. And so the church, God's church, is a community where people are asking themselves, how can I show love to those around me 
in a very practical way. And then the writer injects a dose of realism. And he says, not giving up meeting together, not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of some. How are we going to know the needs that we have? How are we going to know how to show love in a meaningful way to people if we never spend time with them? And the writer is saying, at least to his audience, you guys, some of you at least, are giving up meeting together. You're not hanging out together. You're not spending time together. And I think that would include, meeting together would include what we're doing right now, worshiping God together on Sunday morning. But I think it goes beyond that because realistically speaking, we're not going to develop super meaningful, deep relationships with one another when we're just sitting with each other in a church service, not interacting with one another. So that meeting together that he's talking about would certainly include a church service, but it goes beyond. Maybe it means hanging out, planning that you're going to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes after the service talking to the people around you. And what's really, really cool for me over the last several months is seeing that happening more and more and more here at Renaissance. Or maybe it's deciding to invite uh, some friends or, or another family over for a meal or out to a restaurant together. A couple of folks went to uh, bull riding to watch bull riding last night together, hanging out in that way. Bunch of guys get together and watch, you know, play hockey on Sunday mornings. I avoid that because I value my bones more than uh, some other things there. But, you know, different ways that we can do that. Our small groups, we talk about those over and over and over again. Our small groups are designed so that we will rub shoulders with one another, so that we'll do life together, so that we'll have a group of people who we know well enough that we can be part of their lives and they can be part of our lives in a meaningful way. And so if you're interested in that, stop by the info center or grab me afterwards. Love to tell you more about what's going on there. But the bottom line is we need to be interacting with one another in a way that allows us to develop meaningful relationships. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to have the foundation to know how to love one another and to know what good deeds we can do for one another. And we're not going to have the foundation from which we can speak into each other's lives and to tell each other, hey, let's do this together to help somebody else out in this way. Because otherwise, it's just going to be irritation rather than spurring on. So. We need to be a group of people who are asking ourselves, how can I spend time with others so that I can develop meaningful relationships with them? And then God's church is also known for people who encourage one another. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And that encouragement obviously can take the form of if someone's down, they're having a tough day, a tough week, a tough month, a tough year, just loving on them hugging with him. I was talking to some folks after the service last night. One of them was just going through a, a pretty tough time. There wasn't a whole lot that I could say, but I could listen, give her a hug, pray with her a little bit. Sometimes that's what we need to do to encourage people. But then there's the flip side of it. How often do I, how often do we take the time to say, you know, when you spoke to me after the service last week and just mentioned whatever it was that you mentioned, that was so encouraging to me. Thanks for doing that. Or I saw you guys getting together and doing this, and that was just, 
that was just an encouragement to me, and I realized I need to follow your example more. So there's, there's the encouragement of lifting somebody up, but there's the encouragement of speaking something positive into somebody's life when you're grateful for what they've done for you or what you've seen them doing for, something else, for somebody else or just telling them what you appreciate about them. We need that kind of encouragement. Just think about how other people have encouraged you and then, Lord, how can I do that same thing for somebody else? And so we want to be a community of people who are constantly asking ourselves, whom can I encourage and how can I encourage them? Some of you know I was, at a, I was a chaplain at Princeton University for about 13 years, and I got to meet with hundreds and hundreds of, of students over those 13 years. And over and over and over again, one of the themes that I found in their lives was a loneliness, a feeling of a lack of community. They were away from home, some of them for the first time. Maybe they came from a broken home, so they were glad to be away from home. But they came to campus, and they were looking for a group of people, and some of them found it, but others of them didn't. And I remember one guy who uh, I would meet with uh, pretty regularly, and he was, uh, we were meeting together one day, and he just started pouring out his heart to me about how lonely he was. And he had challenging family life, and, but he was most frustrated because he came to Princeton and he was hoping to find a group of Christians with whom he could hang out who could follow what's basically going on in, in Hebrews chapter 10 and, and have that kind of community, and he wasn't finding it. And he was seeing this group of guys from his class, the same year as he was, who seemed to have that kind of relationship with one another, but he couldn't break into the group, and he was really upset and maybe even angry that those guys weren't reaching out to him and they weren't showing him the kind of love that he wanted them to show him. And I was sitting there listening to him and I'm saying to myself, you know what? He's absolutely right. And I knew all those guys because they were involved in the chaplaincy group that I was involved with. And I was kind of disappointed in them. But I looked at him and I said, you basically have two choices. You can be right and be frustrated and continue to be lonely. Or you can put aside being right and you can put aside being frustrated and you can do for them what they're not doing for you. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, you can reach out to them and you can love them and you can spur them on to love and good deeds and you can encourage them. And he's like, they should be doing it for me. Yes, they should, but you should also be doing it for them. And we wrestled with this for a few weeks and finally he said, all right, I'm gonna give it a try. And it was a couple months later, he came back to me and he said, everything has changed. And I'd actually been able to observe it because I knew those guys. And he was now part of their group, but what was so cool was their click was no longer so much of a click because him reaching out to them and showing them that kind of love actually spurred them on, actually encouraged them, actually motivated them to begin to be less insular and to reach out to others. And these guys became known as a group of guys who really loved not only one another, but others on the campus. People saw them and they became an example of the kind of love and, and sacrifice and care that we ought to have for one another. And they became an example of the kind of community 
that Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about. And it all started with this one lonely guy who was willing to put aside his loneliness and his frustration and reach out and do for others what he wanted them to do for him, but they weren't doing for him. And it transformed him and it transformed these guys and it made a difference in other people's lives. And imagine just for a minute what it would be like if Renaissance were that kind of a church, where if we were the kind of people who would be continually asking ourselves, what can I do to spur somebody else on to love and good deeds? What can I do to let other people at Renaissance know that it's okay to come to me and say, hey, Clay, let me encourage you to do this, to love somebody in that way. That if we were the kind of church we were asking ourselves, what's a meaningful way in which I can show love to the people around me? How can I encourage somebody this week? Lord, my prayer, Lord, help me to encourage somebody at Renaissance this week. Imagine if we were that kind of church. Imagine if we were the kind of church where we showed one another the kind of love that Jesus has shown us. He sacrificed himself for us. Imagine if we were the kind of church where we were eager to sacrifice ourselves for one another. And I know, you know, it's idealistic, right? Realistically speaking, we're not going to do that perfectly. They're not going to make a perfect sitcom or TV show about Renaissance church because we're never going to be the perfect church. But if we let the fact that we may never be perfect stop us from trying, then we're going to be like that student before he was making the effort. But if we're willing to say, okay, reality says I'm broken, you're broken, we're all broken, we're going to continue to hurt each other, but it's not the way it ought to be, and I want to take steps to move us forward. If we're willing to do that, it's the, the sky's the limit as what God can do in our lives and in our congregation, but also in our community. Imagine if people, when they thought about Renaissance, thought about a church that loves one another and loves their friends and neighbors. That's the kind of church that I think and I hope and I pray all of us would want to be part of. And I think one of the best ways that we can move from where we are and take a step to where we ought to be is if each of us would stop and ask the question, what can I do? Can't solve all of the problems, can't fix anybody else, but what can I do? What practical step can I take to make a difference in somebody else's life and pray that God will use that as part of their transformation to become more and more like himself. And so as I'm thinking about 2015, as I've mentioned, I'm praying all sorts of different things for us. I'm praying that we would draw near to God. I'm praying that we would hold fast, that we would hold unswervingly to our hope. But I'm also praying that more and more and more, we would become the kind of people who spur one another on to love and good deeds, who love each other, who do good deeds for one another, who encourage one another, and who want to be together, to know each other, to grow deeper in our relationships with one another so that together we can grow closer to God and we can make a difference in this world by pointing people to Jesus and showing him the kind of love that he has for us. And it's my prayer that 
as that happens, that we would be transformed, that people would see that and that they would be drawn to God. And it would be amazing to see what God would do as he works in our hearts that way. So I'd like to pray for us now. Father, I thank you that you are a God who showed us love when our backs were turned to you, when we were shaking our fist in your face, when we were ignoring you and running away from you. And I thank you that you're that kind of a God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you loved us in such a sacrificial way. And I pray that as we think about your love for us, we would be so moved by that that we would love others with that same kind of love. Father, I pray that you would make us a community that cares about one another, a community that loves each other, a community that wants to spend time together so we can know each other and encourage each other. And I pray that as you do that, you would transform us as individuals and as a community, but then I pray as well that would spill over into the lives of our families, lives of our friends, the lives of our neighbors, the lives of our coworkers. And I pray that you would do wonderful and powerful things in us and through us to bless us, but also to bring glory to yourself. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, thanks for coming out this morning on this uh, icy morning. And uh, to quote Hill Street Blues, one of my favorite shows from the 1980s, hey, let's be careful out there. (laughs)